Yay. And we're live from my closet. Yes. And this closet is not a metaphor to our listeners. Liz is literally inside her closet right now. Um, And this is how she met one of my friends, Jill, who's our guest for today. (laughs) I met Jill in the closet. (laughs) Not the first time. Sorry. Not the first time, not the last. Closet's kind of warm. It's got all my stuff. All my favorite things are in here, you know? My favorite shoes, my favorite shirts. Like a happy space, really. (laughs) My underwear is in here. Yeah. My painting. But yeah, yeah, this isn't about the podcast. So, like a happy space as opposed to uh, events that have happened here, actually, last week in the US. But that was a good segue. I mean, I guess every week is like, (laughs) yeah, but I guess like every week is something terrible. But in particular, Mm. of course, um, we're thinking about the events of Charlottesville. And Liz and I were texting each other. And of course, like it made a lot of sense for us to talk about it because it obviously touches on a lot of things that we care about on this podcast. Um, yeah, race, and higher given education. That our, yeah. Given that our outlook as PhD does is to combine the lives, stories, and the research, mm-hmm. um, we thought it would be also great to have someone who can actually speak to some of the historical significance of some of these statues and hopefully provide some context. For what we're seeing mm-hmm. and in this case um what seemed absolutely perfect was to have when we're talking about it, i was like i know exactly the person uh but a quick <laughs> intro of course uh for the for our listeners in case you're new we are the ph divas we are a podcast about academia culture and social justice across the stem humanities divide i'm dr zainyao representing the humanities from english <laughs> i'm dr elizabeth wayne i am a biomedical engineer and our guest today was the perfect person to have to talk about this um, in, the, in the wake of Charlottesville, Dr. Um, Jill Spivakadel. Um, she we did our PhDs together at Cornell. She actually did her her research on the Civil War and monuments. But not only that, mm. but she is also her alma mater is also UNC Chapel Hill, which is Liz's current location, mm-hmm. and the source of another series of ongoing protest about a confederate statue lovingly known as silent sam right (laughs) welcome jill well thank you is it okay to call you jill on the podcast it absolutely is i'm very glad to be with you guys Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself i mean other than the important thing that you're a tar heel (laughs) (laughs) i I am a tar heel which um (laughs) yeah used to have a little bit more (laughs) I don't know. It, it used to make you a little more proud to say that than it does these days uh, with our current legislature mm. and uh, current administration at UNC. But we'll, we'll get into that later, I'm sure. Speak on it. Um, yep. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I did grow up in North Carolina. I went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad, and then I did get my PhD in English with Zion at Cornell. Um, I, I ended up writing a dissertation on Civil War literature. Uh, I didn't really grow up with an interest in the Civil War, but it kind of emerged um, over time as I was writing. And so, mm. um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm deeply interested in the Civil War's impact on American space in particular. So that kind of, mm. uh, that's how monuments sort of came into the dissertation. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the last few weeks as, as horrifying and sort of yeah, horrifying as they've been, it's been really interesting to see this debate enter the public sphere. Um, so, yeah. It's sort of yeah, like how I, we, we want our research to be relevant, but it's almost like it became too relevant. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. Did you ever think this day would happen where you'd be like, I wonder if there's an expert on Civil War monuments? <laughs> and you're like, me. <laughs> that is a great question. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it seems like these monuments seem to go through like life cycles with our country where, I mean, obviously they were... Huh. Most of them were born at a time when obviously uh, Jim Crow was in place, like women's societies and veterans were deciding to put up these Confederate monuments, but it was at a time of obvious white supremacy, disenfranchisement, violence uh, against African American people. And so that's sort of the genesis of the monuments. But then every time America seems to go through another big transitional period, like the 1960s, for example, is when a lot of the Confederate flags started going up over like South Carolina state house and stuff. Mm -hmm. So so that was the sixties. And then suddenly we're having this, you know, another cycle of debate. And I mean, yeah, I'm glad we're having the debate, but it's horrible that so much has had to happen in order to get us to this point where we're finally like enough is enough. Taking them down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it definitely feels like we're riding that momentum. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and I'm so interested to hear your thoughts, Liz, on what's going on in Chapel Hill, because uh, not being there, it's, um, I've been watching, you know, following on Twitter, watching on the news, and trying to see what's going to happen with the Silent Sam statue in Chapel Mm -hmm. Hill. Oh, maybe do you guys want to explain a little bit about what, um, what the Silent Sam statue is? Sure. Liz, do you want to? Yeah, maybe you should explain. Okay, I can try. (laughs) Well, when I was growing up, uh, my parents both went to UNC, I should say. So I sort of grew up on campus and growing up, basically what I knew about it, I mean, I knew it was a soldier and I knew that I probably would have guessed it was a Confederate soldier based on, you know, (laughs) growing up in the South. But basically what Mm -hmm. I knew was that... um, when a virgin walked past, his gun would go off. That was the... What? <laughs> what? Have you guys heard <laughs> Sorry. this? No. Oh my Did God. you say when a virgin walked by? When a virgin walked wrong? past. Yes. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. Oh my God. <laughs> that's wow, what I, that's that a whole was... other level weird. I hadn't even yeah, anticipated. Well, right? Yes. It's horrible. Yes. Okay. And also to walk I'm by so as sorry. a little girl I think... then? I know. I know. Yes. And so it like... Wait, did you say virgin? virgin. Yeah, she did say yes. virgin. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure if like my end was just breaking up or something, no. but holy cow! Heard this, Liz? I thought, yeah, yeah, I heard this from other people. Yeah, I, I think there are other campuses that have similar like sort of statues and things where this is a common urban legend. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of horrifying on its own. Aside from the fact that yeah. it is indeed a, a Confederate monument that was erected in 1913 by basically paid for by the United Daughters of the Confederacy who built a lot of these monuments throughout the South. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in a very prominent spot spot on campus. It's, it's like a dead center, right? It's right on Franklin street, like right where you would have to walk past it Mm -hmm. almost every day. um, If you were going anywhere on campus and, um, you know, there's been a lot of debate over what it's really honoring, you know, but basically a, yeah. a speech has been found where it, it verifies that it, it was obviously put up in the spirit of white supremacy. Um, yes. The speech is horrifying that was given at the dedication. Um, and I can go into more detail about that if you want. But basically, it's very clear it was put up at a moment where white supremacy was um, running rampant. 
and it was meant to intimidate and scare African Americans, and it's <laughs> been doing that ever since. And I, it's working. Uh, it's working. God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it yeah. put the erect in erection apparently part of the myth. God. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm actually trying to pull up um, part of the inscription. So. I guess I hadn't, I, okay, I, I thought I had, I had never seen Silent Sam, but mm-hmm. the truth was I didn't recognize Silent Sam for what it actually was. It's just, it's on campus. I thought it, I didn't look too closely and mm-hmm. my friend was telling me about this and then we kind of decided to walk by one day, um, like last week and, uh, I walked by mm-hmm. and kind of like that silent Sam. And I was just, I got very emotional because I was reading it. And, um, so the, the things that two things came out to me, um, one is the inscription. The inscription says, um, to the sons of the university who entered the war of 1861 through 65 and answer to the call of their country and whose lives taught the lesson of their commander that, Duty is the sublimest word in the English language. And oh. the Sam, the Confederate soldier, and you know he's a Confederate soldier because he has the inscription CSA on like a, this little satchel he's carrying. And it was just really surreal for me that he had this on and that it was on a university campus honoring their country and they weren't talking about the U.S. Right. Mm. Like it just... That just kind of floored me that there's a monument to answering the call for the country. And they're talking about the Confederacy. This is an honor of the Confederacy. Mm. And then, like, it just felt really eerie. Duty is the sublimest word in the English language. So I just felt almost immediately, like, put off guard. I felt, um, like, is this a sign that you're telling me that any minute now, like, we're going to get our power back? You know, are you just, like, waiting for the portal to be unleashed for your country? And uh, it was just so weird. And then, I'm sure you've seen this other statue, Jill, but maybe 100 feet away, mm-hmm. like, really, really close. There's another statue. And I we were walking, and I said, ah, oh, I bet that one's about black people. And she was, she says, yeah. And right. I'm like, no, get out. That's about slaves? And so mm-hmm. the thing is, it looks like a normal, like, a table that you table. would sit on. Mm-hmm. It's a black, like, round mound, again, about, like, two feet off the ground. And it's a big black stone that's being held up by tiny black people. Uh, and what? you can, they're, like, the people are carved around the edges. And so they're men and women, just kind of, like, in brown clay. And they're, like, above their heads is this black mound. Mm-hmm. And it's... A statue, and it's horrible to even call it a statue, to be honest, but it was constructed in 2002 to honor the slave labor that built the university. So these two statues are right next to each other. Uh And I did not really know how to respond to that feeling (laughs) of that being on the campus and just like, am I supposed to be here? Right. Well, um, and within the vicinity is a building that used to be named for a KKK leader. Yeah, um, really? Yeah, oh Saunders yeah. Hall, um, which they there was a big um, argument over what they should name the hall. People said name it after Zora Neale Hurston, who I think mm. didn't wasn't actually able to study at Chapel Hill. Um, 
because she was black at the time that she wanted to study there. Um, and they ended up just calling it like Carolina Hall or something sort of vague oh. and terrible. Um, but yeah, Saunders used to be, Saunders was a, a KKK leader. So yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, <laughs> the campus has. Very contentious. A, yes, absolutely. Wow, that's pretty blatant. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, just to like, I want to kind of finish the story about the Silent Sam and I want to actually get to you, Jill, because I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just interested in any historical perspective you can add to this, Mm. Um, because sometimes, yeah, maybe it's a data, it's a scientist in me that just wants facts and figures, but sure. um, So the last week or so after Charlottesville, um, first of all, they tore Durham. They tore down the statue mm-hmm. of the Confederate soldier at the Durham co- courthouse. Um, uh, an undergrad from the NC State, NC sorry, Carolina University. And I want to add context for people that, because I've been telling people that, um, oh my gosh, this is happening in my home, and but people think I live in Chapel Hill, and so they don't associate Durham. Mm. So mm-hmm. Durham, Chapel Hill, Carborough, Raleigh, that's more or less the same place. <laughs> this is true. Um, they're all really <laughs> close together. I do a lot of things in Durham. I eat there all the time. I hang out there. And um, so it feels like you're just talking about where I am. And like, you're mm-hmm. talking about people I might even know when you're talking about this area. Right. And um, so that happened. My friends were marching. Mm-hmm. I know this because I see it on all of their timelines and I'm getting this live feed of, of like them on the streets and just like, it felt very real. Mm-hmm. And then last Friday we thought there was going to be a KKK rally in Durham. And, uh, that was scary because I was planning a lunch, a din- oh, I was planning to go out to dinner mm-hmm. and I didn't want to go because I didn't want to walk into a KKK rally. And, um, kind of be like a casual casualty Mm -hmm. but just even having to think about that and um you know there's there's a march on unc's campus that was preceded by an email so we've been getting all these kind of very carefully politically worded emails about what's happening what we can and cannot do and the university's kind of been saying oh well we can't remove it because by north carolina law they actually aren't allowed to remove statues from public property right Sure. And now that apparently the government, the governor has given them permission to do so, you know, they're still dragging their feet and we don't know what the excuse is. And it's just this long drawn out. I think the, the fight is only beginning. Right. Yeah. But it's tense. Right. Well, that's, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting to hear that from someone who's really there. Cause I also, you know, have been following a lot of friends on Twitter and Facebook and yeah, they've been marching, they've been, protesting sitting um, in the sit-ins yeah it, and it's 24 7 sit-ins right now yeah I haven't or is that going on right now I think so oh my gosh yes I mean this is the situation is changing minute by minute um I know in yeah. Charlottesville uh, similar things obviously they had the you know they, it's it's in some ways been worse there but you know they they just um, yeah no I think it's been worse yeah it has with the <laughs> actual death which is just mm-hmm. like unimaginable to everyone I know but um I think they they put the shrouds over the statues today yes yeah um I, I don't know that. what long-term solution that is going to be <laughs> but um yeah yeah so so I mean you know they also 
um, vandalized the Robert E. Lee statue at Duke, and Duke right. removed it, like, overnight, which is very smart. Right. Um, and they're like, we don't want to ruin property, but because UNC is public, they can't remove it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. There are all these really interesting comparisons you can make between Duke and UNC and mm-hmm. what they mean to the state of North Carolina and what people associate with those two universities. Right. And, like, thinking about their responses now, it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, so the law that you're talking about in terms of, like, how the North Carolina legislature won't let them remove the statues, that was part of a series of laws that were passed in various southern states just within the past three or four years. I think North Carolina's was wow. passed in 2015. Mm-hmm. And it was specifically done by the Republican legislature to make sure that Confederate monuments were not moved. I mean, it's it's very wow. clear that that was that was the whole point of it. Um, I don't. I mean, the fact that the Democratic governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, has said, "Sure, go ahead, move Silent Sam to the university," and mm-hmm. and the chancellor still hasn't done anything is really yep. strange and um, kind of inexplicable. I don't know who she thinks she's going to get sued by, but... Um... <laughs> you should see this email she sent. It was more like a, I mean, I would hold the door for you, but, you know, my hands are full. You see? Oh I can't. I, I would if I could, though. I really would. Oh, my gosh. They're like, we don't want the statue here. That's what the email says, you know? Right. So it's really interesting. Right. Do you think they're afraid of, like, alumni donors or something like that? Is that the, like... Possibly. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know. This is something I've tried to, you know, figure out, like who, like, what are they really afraid of? <laughs> because, yeah. yeah, as, as Liz says, like the, the monument was taken down in Durham by, by the people, which was really amazing to see. I think today they put a heart up over the monument, mm-hmm. like a new sculpture mm-hmm. in its place, which is kind of awesome. Um, and yeah, the, the Robert E. Lee statue went away, like, you know, cities all over the country are taking down their statues at this moment. So it seems like if Chapel Hill is going to do it, why not now? (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think people sense the energy, you know, like when is this going to happen again that we have all this momentum, we need to take advantage of it right now. I really feel this sense of urgency among the, um, anti- it's so hard to, um, sorry, I'm backtracking because in the midst of all of these emails and the messages that go out, it's been challenging to distinguish which side is which because we, mm. depending on who you are, you use the opposite word for the other group. So whether, so a rally, which, well, what rally is it? Is it a rally mm. for or against? Right. Are the protesters? So are you talking about the KKK or are you talking about the people who don't want anti-KKK, right? So sometimes, like, this, the messaging just gets so confusing and you don't know who's who and what's what, um, the way information gets exchanged. And it's um, something I'm just thinking about now, actually. Right. Um, yeah, that seems like a really good point. And, I, you know, your point about the message on Silent Sam, how, you know, you're, it's talking about a country, duty to your country, and you're like, uh, that country's not America. Why? <laughs> like, this is a public school. What are you, what are you talking about? Um, I mean, that, that to me brings And it lasted like, four years. Like, are you serious? Was it really a right. country or were you just like a teenager that is like, <laughs> that got a car from your mom? I'm independent. And you're still staying at your mother's house and you're like, 
get out of my room, mom. I'm or right. or else I'll go in your car that you pay for and like have the insurance <laughs> on. I'll go away, never come back. Like what? Get what? Seriously? Right. Yeah, it's the whole lost cause, like reimagining of something that never happened and never, <laughs> you know, thankfully. Um, I, I think you make a really great point about how one of the questions that people who want to take down these monuments maybe should be asking, and this is a something that a friend of mine has been posting about on Facebook, Jeff Smith, who went to Chapel Hill, um, you know, he's like, okay, there are a couple of different reasons you could want to take down these monuments. One, you could take, you could want to take them down because they depict obviously racist white supremacist people, right? People who fought to preserve slavery. Um, mm -hmm. Or you could want to take them down because they depict traitors, right? Like people who actively wanted mm -hmm. to uh, end the United States of America and um, were willing to be violent over that. Or you could yeah. want to take them down because they, you know, they were put up at a moment of renewed white supremacy in the Jim Crow mm. era where they clearly were representing uh, racist thought, you know, violence toward black people, etc. So I think I, I, my friend was making the point that, you know, options two and three are maybe the most rhetorically sound because there are so many, I mean, so many, by our standards, so many people of the 19th century were just mm -hmm. racist, had had opinions that you, we would never fathom today, hopefully. Um, but let's talk about the fact that the, these people were traitors to the United States. And obviously this monument was erected in 1913 when it completely represented part of a wave of white supremacy. Um, I don't know what you guys think about that. I like those points. I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I sort of wanted to bring it to to your research, Jill, because I think, I'm, if I recall correctly, like you weren't just talking about in your research about physical monuments, of course, but like also like how people represent the Civil War and that there's a sort of problem in the Canada-American literature that like very few, I think, um, writers of, of the great, you know, so-called great writers of the 19th century actually represented the Civil War. Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, so yeah, I mean, the Civil War, on the one hand, it's like the most sort of historical with a capital H event in American history. I mean, there's mm -hmm. zillions of different quotations from historians about this, but you know, it's sort of like the er text of American history. It's what defines us in some ways, good and bad, right? Um, but in, in terms of the literature that's been written about the Civil War, a lot of critics have argued that uh, nothing very good was ever written about the Civil War. Like we had this, um, this really great war that was so existential, and you know, I mean, it's sort of horrifying that they make this argument. But you know, we had this amazing sort of historical <laughs> moment that was so uh, important to the country. Nobody ever wrote anything all that great about it. Like nothing, no piece of literature lives up to the reputation of the war itself, um, which is a weird argument to make. And I think one that's, well, it's one that's clearly based in, you know, not reading stuff written by African Americans and not reading, not reading a lot of stuff <laughs> written by women. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a very, it's like, no, okay, Emerson did not write that much about the Civil War. Like, you have his diaries, but, um, but, Plenty of women were writing about the Civil War 
if you read anything Frederick Douglass ever wrote, period, but anything Frederick Douglass wrote about the Civil War, it's probably going to be one of the top 10 things you've ever read. So like people mm -hmm. were clearly digesting this at the time. It's just, you know, what we want to remember about the canon is is different now. Um, and a lot of the things that were written about the war weren't about, you know, bloodshed and duty, like the statue says, right? A lot of it was about people at home or people sitting around waiting or people, um, I don't know, pe people fighting for their freedom. And so maybe that's part of the, you know, rewriting of Civil War history that takes place after Reconstruction where you don't, certain narratives get suppressed. Why do you think people are trying so hard to re-envision history? Mm. Oh my gosh. You know, a lot of this seems like that's not what happened. That's not why we fought this war. Right. You know, the whole state's right argument. Us. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's, I guess it's a way to, <laughs> I guess it's a way that Southerners try to, would, were trying to reconcile. And I, I mean, white Southerners were creating this myth, right? So they're trying to reconcile themselves within the country. Um but I don't, I mean, yeah, to rescue some sense of, I don't know, valor or something out of a completely like... unvalorous thing. I don't know what I mean. You know, Jill, it seems like they're making the new history is the history mm -hmm. of re trying to re-envision the history. Yes. Right? Yes. Like there's a historical track record of trying to re-envision this periodically, right? Absolutely. No? Yes. No, completely. Yeah, it's like exactly like alternative facts and that there's a whole genre of alternative history, of course. And I think right. this actually brings us to the fact that, of course, HBO has greenlit the Confederate, mm -hmm. um, which is that exact alternate history where the Confederacy, I think, never ended. Is that correct? And slavery never ended. Right. Um, right. Yeah. What's yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> I think that's over, right? They find like some. Did they, they did? officially? I, maybe they didn't officially cancel it. Maybe in my mind, I officially right canceled now. it. I just remember seeing that something there was a tells lot of me that would never get canceled. Like the whole like, I have black friends, I have black family members, and then they also. I remember they brought in two black uh, writers. I think one of whom was used to be part of, um, I think, Empire. Empire. Um, okay. But but then obviously that doesn't resolve a lot of the issues. I feel like if it did manage to get canceled, we would have heard about it through our networks, but I don't know. That's true. Yeah, maybe they're trying to ride out the bad press and see what happens, but it just seems like such a monumentally, no pun intended, <laughs> such a horrifying, it's such a, just a really bad idea. Because <laughs> like even levels. on the level of just like, how would you advertise this show in a way that wouldn't be racist, right? Would you just have the word Confederate written with a flag behind it, like it put up in bus shelters and on subways? Like what? Right. Right? Right. I just read a really amazing... Um, story, I think it was published by GQ about um, Dylan Roof, the, the guy yeah. who um, murdered nine people the Charleston in Charleston. Nine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I would, ha in terms of trying to maybe get a little bit at the sort of like alt right, neo Confederate, new, like mindset, it, it helped me more than other things have in terms of trying to understand like what in the world his life was like. Um, 
but the, it also, I mean, it, it's, it's a profoundly beautifully written um, story because, I mean, ultimately there's no understanding and it's, um, it's sort of dealing with the heartbreak of that. But, I mean, Charleston was a big moment. I assigned, um, I, I had my students read some essays by ta Coates right after that about, mm-hmm. um, you know, no, the Confederacy was about slavery and uh, these, these monuments do need to come down. And, and my students still, you know, two, this was maybe two years ago, and it was still kind of surprising to them that, um, that these, the, that these monuments existed and that, um, you know, they had been told very different things about the Civil War. So I don't know, I, I do think what they, what that moment... Told? Gosh, I mean, there's so much like sort of, yeah, just uh, the the whole happy slave narrative that's uh, is sort of foundational mm-hmm. to the lost cause, right? Like it was a benevolent institution, um, uh, and that's sort of the that's what you're going to get if you go to a like a plantation mm-hmm. in South Carolina, right? Nowadays, that's trying to sell. Um, trying to sell that moment of like antebellum beauty and hoop skirts and gone with the wind and (laughs) mammy and um yeah so i think they i think honestly i mean obviously they don't believe it to that extent but that is something that a lot of a lot of students had grown up with um or you know the monuments were just kind of invisible to them i think Mm -hmm. i think sometimes when you grow up in that kind of when you grow up in a place like North Carolina or South Carolina, it's just always there. And so you maybe don't question it as much as you should and as much as people now are, Mm -hmm. thankfully. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about students, you're talking about students in like Maryland or the DC area or to sort of give a perspective on the fact that this isn't just specifically within certain states or. Right. Right. Well, and I taught a class at Cornell um, called, uh, monumental America. And that's really when I started, I was teaching it while I was writing my dissertation. And so that's when I started thinking about you know, what are, what are these monuments doing? Um, what are they upholding? What narratives are they putting forth and what are they suppressing? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I had to kind of like push my students to go with me to, to like see what had been in front of them, um, their whole lives. And I think by the end of the course, wow. they, they, they got it that, you know, that, um, these monuments were sort of codifying a history that was that historical narratives that were often false or, you know, the, um, that they reflected more of our time than the time that they were purporting to represent. Um, but you know, that was maybe four mm-hmm. or five years ago. And I have a feeling if I taught that class now, um, I would not have to <laughs> do any, any arm twisting to get the students to go along with me, you know, thinking about why these things are important. Mm-hmm. So how did you become interested in monuments? I want to hear, I know you mentioned Ooh. that you didn't grow up thinking, I want to get a, make my thesis about Civil War monuments. How did that, right. uh, tell me about this trajectory. Gosh, I think, so I think it started with Herman Melville, um, as all, as all okay. good things do, uh, right? Mm. Um, he had a whale, right? <laughs> he had a whale. Kind but, of notable. Yeah. Right, right. After the whale, he wrote a lot of poetry that nobody likes to read very much because Zion can maybe back me up on this. But yeah. it's kind of, it's like thousand page long tomes about the Holy Land and stuff. But he also wrote a book of poems about the Civil War 
that I had never really encountered before Mm. grad school. And um, it's arranged chronologically. It starts with John Brown at Harper's Ferry and it ends with Mm. the monumentalization of the war. It was published in 1866, so immediately Mm. when the war is over. Um, and it's called Battle Pieces. And it's it's wonderful. I, I think everyone should read it. Um, but I was really, really interested in the section of the book called Verses, Inscriptive, and Memorial that are sort of acting as epitaphs or memorial inscriptions for the dead of the Civil War. Um, it seemed really interesting to me that he was memorializing so immediately. And, and he seemed to be thinking about how um, poetry and epitaphs didn't really work in light of a, a war where, you know, 800,000 people died. Um, and so that sort of led me to think more about the war's effect on poetry, um, poetry and monumentalization, um, the words on monuments as poetry. Um, and then I sort of expanded to think more about Civil War space in general, um, because suddenly I was seeing all of these weird Civil War spaces all around me, national cemeteries and monuments and battlefields. Mm-hmm. And they're really everywhere, especially in the Eastern US, if you start looking for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember you did a research trip to Arlington, for instance, right? Yeah, I've, yeah, I've been to Arlington. I also like lived really close to Arlington recently, so that was kind of always weighing on the back of my mind. I also went down to Andersonville, Georgia, which mm. is a really bizarre place, like maybe the weirdest place I've ever been to um, in terms of like how uncomfortable <laughs> it felt. Um, <laughs> it's so there was a there was a you know, the famous um, POW camp there where, um, gosh, I think 20,000 or so Union soldiers died in captivity. It's in the middle of absolute wow. nowhere in the middle of Georgia. There's a teeny, teeny, tiny town there. And um, it's basically, it, it, the town feels frozen in time, but there's a monument to the put up by the Daughters of the Confederacy to the the man who ran the prison camp in the middle of the town. Yeah. And he was executed at the end of the war for war crimes, basically. And yet this monument was put up circa like 1900, around the same time as Silent Sam. Um, Yeah, it's a weird and uncomfortable place. Um, but it's also a place, there's a short story um, written by a, a woman writer of the 19th century named Constance Fenimore Wilson. There's a short story about Anderson Mill, basically, um, and about the national cemeteries in the South and you know, the sort of weirdness of having an island of uh, Union soldiers in the middle of a southern town. Um, and you know, I became interested in how there are also islands of southern soldiers buried in northern towns like Elmira um, Mm -hmm. near Ithaca was the home of sort of a mirror uh, POW camp. Um, Wow. And so there are a ton of southern soldiers, including, I learned, my great-great-great-grandfather is buried in Elmira, New York. He's Hmm. he was from like rural North Carolina, but he fought for the Confederacy and uh, ended up a POW and is now in Elmira, New York. Um, so yeah, wow. I, I, I how did you find was that trying out? to think about. Yeah, did you know that when you were going to Cornell, or 
I didn't. I, I, it may have been in the back of my mind somewhere, but I had clearly forgotten it somewhere <laughs> along the way. And I was you actually, like, I had every time written part of my dissertation. <laughs> I'd written part of my dissertation about this cemetery because Mark Twain is buried right beside it. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, mm. And there's also a, I, this should be a separate podcast, but there was an African-American caretaker of the cemetery um, who now has a museum there in Elmira and he's sort of a local hero because he actually took wow. really good care of the Confederate bodies that, uh, that he was burying. Hmm. Um, and so I, I found out a couple of years after I wrote about it in my dissertation, just through like clicking on ancestry, like an ancestry website or something, I was just clicking <laughs> backwards in my ancestry and I got to my great, great, great grandfather who had said buried at Elmira. I was like, Oh my goodness, that's um, incredibly bizarre, and yeah, that's so. unbelievable. How does that yeah. feel? I don't. I I was. I don't know. I was just weirded out, and then I felt like I needed to text <laughs> all my friends who knew that I was weirdly interested in the cemetery. <laughs> you know, to be like, oh my god, mm-hmm. this is so eerie. Um, and yeah, it, it's something I'm still trying to work out, and I imagine a lot of southern white people are trying to work out like what do I do with this ancestor who um you know I wouldn't be here if he hadn't existed but he yeah I imagine was a poor person from North Carolina but ended up fighting for this incredibly wrong-headed cause like what do I do with that now how can I how can I reconcile it with what with today's world like it I mean how can I fix it in a way I don't I don't know I want to I don't know maybe Mm -hmm. write an essay about it or something to try to figure it out but Mm -hmm. yeah there are lots of these ghosts (laughs) yeah it's like we're two sides of a of the coin because you know I'm from Mississippi and Mm -hmm. how do how do I rationalize or reckon with my ancestors being slaves right um, because sometimes it's kind of interesting when I I started mentioning it because sometimes people don't know they they think I'm first or second generation African, hmm. um, particularly by some of the schools that I've gone to where a large population of the black people there are actually um, not slave descended. But sometimes oh. mentioning that I am slave descended mean like it's like they look at you differently. They're like, I never thought of that. What does that mean? Or just what does that context mean for where I am now and how I got here and like this, the, the struggle really. So it's, it's really interesting. I guess we kind of share that in a way, mm-hmm. right? Like dealing with those, how do we deal with, with our past? Right. Well, I think I, I don't know, reading literature makes me feel better <laughs> about some of it. And, <laughs> um, like Charles Chestnut, who's, um, I know Zion knows well, um, who's from North Carolina, um, was, is dealing with a ton of these ideas in his work. So I guess I'll put in a plug for him because I think he's totally brilliant and Mm -hmm. completely underread. And specifically, I think he's dealing with like spaces where slavery existed um, he's writing about the time of slavery, even though he's writing like during post reconstruction era. And so he's sort of using the time of slavery to think about, um, how the civil war impacts space, but like, you know, what is, um, what is the new America going to look like after the war too? 
Um, mm-hmm. And he, I, I don't know. I think he's like. Yeah, he's an underbred writer. He's like a brilliant um, African American novelist, and also um, a mm. doctor. What's, What's his name again? Actually, uh, Charles Chestnut. I'll put his name in the description. Chestnut is spelled with two T's. Um, but his books have been so incredibly important. I think like mm-hmm. some texts like the, the Marrowwood tradition was like one of the first depictions of a, was it a lynching or an anti-black race riot? Yeah, a um, race riot. And, and yeah. it was based on a real riot in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, which is another town that's only just now coming to terms with the, the fact that African-Americans were killed and this race riot that happened 100 years ago. But yeah, he, he writes about that. He, he writes about... Um, yeah, all kinds of contemporary racial issues by looking to the past. Mm-hmm. And sort of, again, and like a, an example of this amazing polymath, you know, I think because he was also like, was he actively practicing as a doctor as well while he was writing? I, I don't remember, but yeah. Um, I was also going to put a quick plug in, which is like Jill um, speaking so eloquently about Melville. She actually has an article out about uh, battle pieces. So I could also link that. Oh. <laughs> sure thank to you description in case people are interested in checking that out that would be awesome i think we've, we've so we've been talking a lot about um a particular type of monument but would you like to t- tell us a little bit what about um monuments of different forms of history i think like mm. i remember you I think one time talking about like myelin i think myelin's Mar- monument for instance or like yeah. um, talking about like say the way that people have been trying to put up um monuments monuments of uh, martin luther king jr things like that like mm-hmm. yeah like can you speak uh, i'd like you to speak to other forms of uh, monumentalizing in american history sure um well there's i mean there there's some really great scholars that are working on this in american studies and in, in history um erica doss e-r-i-k-a um doss has written a book called, oh gosh, I'll get it, I'll get the title wrong. It's Monumental something or other, or no, Memorial Mania, that's right. Um, And she Mm -hmm. sort of traces the history of monumentalization through um, American history, um, but sort of talks about how the postmodern monument is developing. And I think she would probably date that from, yeah, the Maya Lin Vietnam Veterans Memorial uh, forward to today, like through the 9-11 um, mm. Memorial and Museum, which I haven't visited, but which I, I remember having students describing it to me. And it, you know, it sounds like such a different experience than this, yeah, the guy on the horse um, of, of yesteryear. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, mm-hmm. it, 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 it does seem that monuments are, they're becoming more interactive in a way, like they're really forcing they're, they're trying to um, inspire reflection in people who are, who are taking them in, which is, which is interesting. Um, and certainly the Maya Lin monument like literally reflects the people who are standing there looking, reading the names of the soldiers uh, from, the, from the Vietnam War. Um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, it's, it, it, looking at the history of monumentalization is fascinating to me because it's it's an aesthetic thing right like what's what's beautiful are, are monuments supposed to be beautiful if they're for horrifying things are they mm. supposed to be peaceful mm. are they supposed to be disruptive um there's there's the aesthetic question there's the historic question there's the question of narrative right like what what words are going to, to produce the desired effect um 
So yeah, I think that's why I, I like them. Like, I, I find them so fascinating because so much of our culture, and, and I shouldn't say so much of certain cultures are reflected <laughs> in, uh, in them. And um, like the Rocky statue. The Rockies, yeah, that, that was awesome. Everyone agrees on that, right? <laughs> well, depends. I don't know. I don't know if they do. Yeah, um, but yeah. I, I mean, I so like President Trump talked about how the the monuments shouldn't come down because they are beautiful, and I found uh, that incredibly bizarre. I mean, not I don't know. Everything is a little bit biz- a lot bizarre coming from him, but um, like. The, the Confederate statues are not beautiful, I don't think. I don't think there's really an aesthetic <laughs> argument to make there. Um, I mean, yeah, a lot of them were mass-produced. A lot of them were produced in the North. Um, <laughs> some of them are really strange-looking. There are Ooh. memes on the Internet of, like, some, some really bizarre-looking Confederate memorials. So, like, the fact that that was where his <laughs> argument seemed to come from was even more evidence that that's not really what he's, what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But, Sorry, um, could you just go to the, um, the point that you said that um, as these were mass produced, they're also being produced in the North? Because yeah. I feel like this is something that we have to keep emphasizing because I think that the South also like serves obviously to let the rest of the U.S. sort of disavow their own racism. So do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that at all? Right, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Tell them about themselves. Right. I think that's absolutely right. There's... Um, there's a scholar named Jennifer Ray Greason, who I think is at UVA, and she's written a book called Our South, and it's about how um, the South is both, it's, you know, it's necessary to uh, form this American consciousness as an other, right, exactly as you say, to sort of make the rest of the country feel, um, hey, we're doing okay, hey, we're not so bad, hey, at least we're not like them. Um and that was, that was sort of brought home to me when I was at Cornell. I had a student, I was teaching um, mystery, mystery stories class, mm-hmm. um, and I was teaching a story called A Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glassbowl, which is set in the Midwest somewhere, like I want to say Kansas or Nebraska, I don't know. It's on a farm somewhere. And um, I had a student say, just sort of offhandedly, but in the middle of class, um, I don't like stories set in the South. And I was like, what about this is set in the South? Like, what, where, is, or, you know, where is this coming from? And he said, oh, well, it's, it's on a farm. It's rural or whatever. And I was uh, like, um, interesting. We, need, we need to unpack this. Let's, like, let's step and back And they're in Ithaca, which is nothing but. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, ironic. Or, or maybe it's, it really Whoa. underlines the fact that Cornell students really don't leave campus. They have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was from Long Island. So... I think the South was, yeah, Ithaca may have been the South to him. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I mean, there are enough Confederate flags outside of it, so right. anyway. I, I saw a Confederate flag. I was driving from Canada into the U.S. through Maine, and the very first thing I saw as we entered Maine, so the north, like, you know, the topmost part of the contiguous U.S. was a Confederate flag. And I was like, okay, um, this is bizarre. So clearly it represents something other than, well, represents a lot. But, but yeah, it yes. was, I never really felt my southernness until I moved to Ithaca. I don't know if you felt that way, Liz, or if maybe Philadelphia How did you feel your was. southernness? Yeah. Like in what ways? I'm curious. 
Well, I just never felt like, I, I, I guess I never realized how that, that otherness, that, like, that it was sort of an unknown entity or it was sort of a cipher into which people could place, like, oh, it's, oh, it's rural, oh, it's backward, oh, it's, mm. yeah, it's just different yeah. somehow. Um, and I guess that, yeah, I didn't really encounter that until I moved to Ithaca. Um, yeah, we, I, I, with a friend of ours, Alex Black, um, mm -hmm. who Zion knows, we started teaching a Southern literature class at Cornell because we were like, I think, <laughs> I think we need to talk about like, what, what is the South? What is this literature upholding? Mm -hmm. Um, what is it today? What has it been throughout American history? What kind of student, like, did you, yeah, what, what were the students like? And also hmm. what brought them to to the class and how did they respond to it? Yeah, so we had we had a lot of students. There were maybe 50 or so students because it was it was a one English. credit class. So, mm. yeah. Wow. Um, and a lot of them were upperclassmen and I'd say maybe maybe a third of them were southerners and were maybe like looking for <laughs> like I don't know, trying to read something that felt familiar or something. Um, uh a lot of them, I think, were interested in African-American literature, which we were reading a lot of. Um, and I don't know what drew the rest of them to it. I don't, I mean, you know, Southern literature, you can sort of, like, that's a known entity, right? Like, you can imagine it's going to be, I guess, some Faulkner and some, yeah. I, I don't know, it's uh, some uh, Carson, Carson McCullers and... Mm -hmm. Ah, oh, the lady who writes the short stories. Where Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Zine. Yeah, they're going to revoke my PhD. Um, <laughs> I won't tell anyone. Shh. Thank you. Must be to get to unless they listen to this point in the podcast. I guess. <laughs> right. Right. But we're like, okay, well, Frederick Douglass is a Southern writer. Let's read some Harriet Jacobs, who's a North Carolinian, who wrote mm. like what is maybe my favorite book to teach of all time: Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about Thomas Jefferson. Um, <laughs> And notes on the state of Virginia and what he's saying about race and racial identity and, you know, how can you say all men are created equal and I'm pretty sure uh, the black race is inferior. Like, how do you hold those two thoughts in your mind at the same time? Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was a sort of mixed bag of students, but I hope they came away with it. With it. I mean, I don't know. We just wanted to complicate everything. So hopefully we mm -hmm. did that. <laughs> <laughs> with the truth yeah <laughs> hmm yeah I um I remember my freshman year I um I realized I was southern in some very distinct ways that I because I was the only southerner I knew I couldn't um compare notes to see whether I was really making mm. it up so I partially <laughs> felt like it was in my head but also felt this is very real and very different. Right. And um, one is how we talk about race. Mm -hmm. I realized very quickly because I had to realize this to shut my mouth, basically. Mm. <laughs> you, like, don't tell people you're weird. Because in Mississippi, I just felt like we always talked about race. Or you always knew what part of town you couldn't go to or when you couldn't be out or how to act with police or what your white friends could do that you could not do. Or you knew historically 
which part of town you were in, where the old water fountain, white only water fountain used to be, where like the old white high school was and why it looks better. And you knew right. that. You just knew it. It was right. ingrained. You knew everything. And you would even talk about it. And so I would say certain things and people would say, what's wrong with you? Are you, what? Why would you say that? And, it, and it's, they don't talk about it. And I learned to not do that. And the second okay. thing I would say about being Southern is that I realized that people from New England don't think there's a world outside of that at all. And that's not even just a Southern thing. That's, that's really like the rest of the country doesn't matter. They're the place where you want to be. Right. People from New York City, everything, nothing is better than New York City. Mm-hmm. You, and you'll never be able to have a conversation about anything that doesn't ultimately go back to how New York City is the best place. <laughs> you could be talking about tap water. Oh, New York City has the best tap water. I can't drink this. <laughs> I one. have actually read that. Yeah, is that true? Because um, people see, they're very proud of their mineral content. Apparently, it helps oh um, making it's dough, from the Catskills anyway. or something. But oh, they're just really. Right. <laughs> and so I started to realize that whereas as a Southerner, the way you think of space and time, you drive everywhere, and you mm-hmm. kind of so. So that's why I was thinking about, you know, you're in D.C. To a Southerner, you're actually next door. To someone from New England, that would be, like, too far away. And it's like going to a different country. (laughs) Right. And so I think I was raised to think of the world. And also, when you're in the South, you have to go different places to go to the best schools. Right. So I'm used to traveling. And they're not used to doing that or thinking of themselves as not being the center. Right. Or not being the best. And right. that extends not only to economic things and like culture, travel, where this, why would you go anywhere else? I think it also extends to this racial narrative. We're mm-hmm. the best. We were never, we were the right side of history all the time. Mm-hmm. How, so mm-hmm. we're not like those people. Right. Yeah. I think that, that I think has been my experience as well. Um, and yeah, I, I would love to hear Zine's Canadian perspective on that as well. Not to <laughs> oh. neglect Canada, Zine. It's okay. Even it's though okay. I know we, that we some, some of our friends like, don't think of us at all. I'm Shyla, if you listen to this. Um, <laughs> but, no, for me, to, to the oddness of being a non-American, Americanist, has, I feel like the, the space of alienation is one that I really thrive in because I think it does give me a type of perspective. Um the oddness is that like I'm studying American literature because I tried to actually avoid it um, growing up because in Canada where where I was and I was of the mentality that we really felt the the influence of America as as the empire mm-hmm. um, and we're very sort of resentful like resentful of it on, on the one hand of course we're very intermeshed with the U.S. but at the same time like very critical of it and like growing up during especially the um, post 9-11 era and seeing the sort of atrocities that were committed in the name of U.S. freedom, I think that for, for my generation was very highlighted that, that there was this deep underlying hypocrisy in the U.S. And, mm-hmm. and the, for me, that manifested in the fact that, say, I n- didn't want to take the American literature course in high school, for instance, or I never thought that that'd be something I, I worked on. Um, that being said, when I did have to take a, an American literature class, like I immediately gravitated to um, the first... Uh, like the souls of black folk because like that Mm -hmm. was like one of the things I thought was absolutely awesome but then Mm -hmm. also in that same class if I remember correctly and I'm pretty sure my memory is pretty good uh our professor gave us the states rights argument when we were talking about Twain about the civil war and even then when I was sitting there I was thinking like 
I don't think this is right, even though my <laughs> professor is telling me this. But in Canada, right. like there's, in the way that you're talking about the South sort of serves to, again, I'd be the whipping boy sort of of the U.S. Likewise, the U.S. and is that to Canada on a moral mm. level. Like, of mm. course, we won't have the type of power or economic strength, but at the same time, like people want to say, see that like race problems, uh, problems of inequality, that's more of an American thing. Uh, right. The big bad people, um, like neo-colonialists abroad, those are clearly the Americans um, invading other spaces and being bad to brown people. That's not something we mm. do in Canada. And so to me, it's like, a, it's, it's really interesting because again, like, as I, as I like to say, like, I, I feel like I try to really own the space of alienation. Like I'm not someone who ever would have a type of nostalgia for my subject. And I think that in, lit in English as a field generally, I think sometimes, a lot of times people gravitate to periods of time because they have felt an affinity for it, but actually I did it precisely because I don't. And of course, to speak in a larger sense, of course, like we don't really see, say like, Asian American presences in the literary canon until Suisse and Far, which is not until the very turn of the turn of the 19th century. So you could say in a very real sense, and this is something that I've talked about at, at some conferences, like when I go to a conference on early America, it's not just that I will only be one of the, uh, maybe one of the only Asian people in that space, and also one of the few um, people of color in that space, but also there'll be nothing that represents me probably that's gonna be talked about at all. Right. Um, and that's, of course, it has its own type of pressure, but at the same time, I try to think of the type of alienation as something that I could weaponize for my type of critique that mm -hmm. helps perhaps me push against the idea that rather than begging for inclusion into a, a canon that we know as a suspect or, and also like projects of nation and state, which are built on indigenous dispossession and genocide and black enslavement, instead, like maybe it's because because I'm so alienated, I should not try to embrace a type of norm, but then take it as a, as a moment to try and push for something that could be completely different. Right. Um, yeah. No, that's uh, really cool. Cause that's kind of the opposite of, I think what Liz and I were thinking about, like in terms of like relating a whole lot to the, um, like, what do I do with my Southern, my Confederate ancestors? What do you do okay. with your enslaved ancestors? And you're, you're sort of like, I don't, <laughs> I don't have this. And that, I don't know. I envy that perspective sometimes. <laughs> as uh, as we're wrapping yeah, up, um, one thing I want to bring up. So um, as our listeners may have seen on social media, Liz uh, wrote a really beautiful essay recently about what does it mean for the start of the school year to be, um, to be beginning in the wake of Charlottesville and are the universities mm -hmm. prepared? And so um, I was wondering, Liz, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then maybe also you and Jill talk a little bit about how are you preparing as individuals or how you see co your colleagues preparing or your, what you want your schools to do in your classes yeah. uh, on the campus? Um, so I, I wrote this because I was reflecting on what it was like to train as a um, graduate resident fellow. And what that would be equivalent to an RA. I know that every school has a different acronym to, to describe this, but this essentially is the role of that live-in student that's supposed to, um, you know, help you when you get locked out, but also if there's actually a, an emergency, the students that help and the support staff, the student residence life. And I was thinking about all the training that people go through, but we don't really talk, go through training about race. And we don't go through training about like these new turmoils, uh, the, sorry, tension. And I think in general, that system is very slow to update itself. 
So now we were pretty good at like talking about depression and sexual assault. And you should even argue why we're so good at talking about sexual assault, but that's not what the podcast is about or the, this particular episode. Um, but we have an update to talk about these rapid changes that are happening. And I felt like it was something that we should, because I know that we're seeing more and more tension, um, being expressed by students. And, um, my kind of sticking point here is that we're now in an era where people are willing to get felonies and we're in an era where people are willing to proudly say that they are white supremacist, right? So if you put all those types of people in this huge pot, it is very, these very close quarters, um, they're going to have tensions arise in, and how are we going to talk about that? How are we going to train people who are supposed to be like the front line of this discourse, right? People who live in the dorms, people who may like manage student groups. How are you going to manage those tensions? How are you going to be able to feel prepared to do that job? Because that's exactly what you're going to have to do. I mean, everybody's woke right now. And if they're not woke, they're like you know, living a nightmare or something. I don't know, but they're, they're here. And, um, you know, I just felt like if, if anything, if there's any indication, we're probably just going around with the status quo and we're not really, we're trying to pretend like it's not here. And I don't, I don't know. Jill, what is your school doing to prepare if anything? Yeah. So I'm going to be teaching at a high school this fall, which is going to be even more interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm teaching American literature. And so I, I, so my orientation's tomorrow. So I don't know what we're doing (laughs) to prepare something, I hope. Um, But uh, I I mean, I feel kind of lucky that I'm teaching literature because I feel like if I can choose the works that are going to get students thinking about these issues and that are going to get them talking about them, even if the conversations are uncomfortable, then something is something positive will hopefully come out of that interaction. So I know like uh, last fall I taught um, Harriet Jacobs incidents in the life of a slave girl. I'll put in another plug for it. I think Mm -hmm. it's the best thing ever. (laughs) It's just so moving and harrowing and beautiful and just, and true, um, Mm -hmm. all true. And so um, I taught it last fall, actually, like, as, like, I think the month that Trump was elected. And it was Mm -hmm. actually really cathartic, I think, for the students to read this and see one woman who had, I mean, everything stacked against her. (laughs) She's born enslaved she's a woman she's facing sexual assault daily she's trying to figure out what's best for her kids um Mm -hmm. but seeing her like i mean she she gets away she figures out a place for herself she i mean she kind of screws the man in several ways that are really satisfying as a reader um Mm -hmm. and so i don't know it's the students i think just like it was this unbelievable cathartic thing for them to encounter this text at that moment. So I think that, I mean, obviously I, you know, you have to talk about the real world situations of like what's happening with um, protests on campus and things like that right now, because there are real, real world implications to Mm -hmm. what's happening in Chapel Hill, what's happening in Charlottesville and elsewhere, but sort of secondarily, like, 
I, I hope that reading those books helps students figure out, you know, how to become empowered to, to make change, to protest, to, yeah, make rhetorical appeals to change their friends' minds about things. We shall see. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my fingers are crossed as the beginning of the school year begin, um, begins. Yeah, it's I feel be... very shielded from it being in Canada <laughs> right now, but also not teaching at the moment. So, but yeah. I'm obviously seeing those those dramas play out for like all my friends um, everywhere else. Yeah, it's both. It's it's it's. I don't know. Hopefully, it's an opportunity. It's obvious. It's a scary time, and it's. But like Liz, it does seem like the momentum is on the, the hopefully the side of good. So maybe something good will come of it. Mm-hmm. Hey, maybe we'll be lucky, and by the time we release this episode um, the following week, uh, the st- silent, Sil- silent Sam will be down. That would be cool. No, that would be a nice update. Things Let's are happening it, quickly. But I think we should be going a step further and saying, "Let's melt it," because for all we know, they're just putting it in some big storage where it'll just be mm. put up again, like when intention's over. Mm. <laughs> right. Well, that's or an interesting question. Put in, cemetery. Yeah. Put in right. the Confederate cemetery. <laughs> I right. Know. I read about that happening in another place in North Carolina because a car knocked a, a statue down. And so the ladies wanted to move it. The ladies of the Confederacy, which is still a thing. Um, really? Is it still a thing? Yeah, wanted to move it to a cemetery. And actually the Confederate veterans, like the sons of the Confederacy, didn't want them to do it. They wanted the, it to stay in the middle of the road. And I think ultimately it was moved to the cemetery, but but only so that cars wouldn't hit it, basically. Mm. Which wow. Is, yeah, that was like three years ago. I'm not sure which part of that story is more distressing, that they're still the daughters of the Confederacy. Um, and they were some really de- evil people. I mean, not evil, but they were, yeah, they, were, they did evil things in a very sinister yeah. but effective way. It's yeah. scary when people can do evil things in a very effective, efficient way like under the radar kind of way um right and the fact that they were such a system they managed to put all these statues just spreading like like some sort of disease and i don't know and the jefferson right. davis highway i mean there that's why there's a highway mm-hmm. after jefferson davis mm-hmm. even in san diego california mm-hmm. because of the daughters of the confederacy it's so messed up although like on the opposite side i think it would did I see that it was the descendants of robert e lee or someone else who like wrote against um sorry, yeah. wrote against white supremacy and for the removal of the monument. So it seems like there's other people that are able to deal with like the their heritage in ways that are like productive and anti-racist. Yeah, I've seen a couple of those op-eds, like the descendants of Stonewall Jackson and the descendants mm-hmm. of Robert E. Lee. And yeah, so I guess that's, <laughs> I guess that's encouraging. Yeah, like people can take the, can be different or like, I guess this also becomes like this very real way that a lot of people are sort of trying to reckon with like inherited privilege, not just as an abstract thing where people just go around in a circle and name what their privileges are, but like to really try to reckon with the past and mm. in, in substantive ways. Right. Yeah. Um, Liz, anything else we should discuss or should wrap up? No, my mind is reeling with all these, this new bits of information and, things I should probably read and 
Confederate statues and knowing what lies ahead. Yeah, um, well, I will be thinking of you in Chapel Hill, Liz, and <laughs> hoping, hoping for change. And my, my plug, since we've been talking about a lot of um, very heated uh, and negative things happening in Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill in general, uh, when I was, I went down there for one conference, and I think North Carolina barbecue is the best. Sorry, that's, that's correct. Sorry, so Mississippi. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, sorry, Liz. What's, what is <laughs> no, no, no. You, you can you can absolutely have your favorite barbecue. I love vinegar, so North like, Carolina I just love the North Carolina a lot of one. methane. Mm. <laughs> what true. type? What style is Mississippi we barbecue? to global warming significantly. What? <laughs> What type of, what style is Mississippi barbecue? Mississippi barbecue is hickory and sweet. Hmm. Okay. Well, that sounds good. And um, I mean, yeah. Yeah. All barbecue is good. It's, it's just North Carolina's is the best. But even in North Carolina, <laughs> we can't decide like what, you know, which sauce is best. So yeah. always controversy. I think it just gets old though. Cause it's just like the Carolina pulled pork with the coleslaw. It's like Ooh. pretty standard. Yeah. Oh, I'm delicious. hungry. It's still nice. I know. Oh. In Canada, we don't get have, get good barbecue. Also, I only realized when I moved to the U.S. that oh, here's a big difference between Canada and America, is that when we say barbecue, we we usually mean grilling, not barbecue as you guys do barbecue. Yeah. Right. And so we don't no, really have like. No, people mean that too, and it's annoying. Mm. Yeah, that's wrong. Southern... My husband said that tonight. We we got our grill out, and he was like, "I'm going to barbecue," and then he was like, "Wait." No, no. I'm living yeah. in Maryland too long. It's annoying. Yeah, I get upset. Like, are you barbecue? I'm actually that person who's like, who would say, "Are you barbecuing or are you grilling?" Right. Mm. Don't don't get my hopes up. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "What's the difference?" And I'm like, "What do you mean? What's the difference?" And then I go into like my whole spiel about what the difference is, and I'm like, oh. "So you're grilling because you don't know the I've difference." Been so you're grilling. That's I've been converted. Thing. But I still eat it, so it doesn't even matter. Like, I, I get all prissy about it, and I'm like, yeah, but I'm still hungry, so I'll eat it. But this is grilled. This is not barbecue. Even if it's got some, even if the meat has stripes over it, you know, like it got burned or something, that was still mm-hmm. grilling. Mm, yeah. I think we can all agree. Yeah. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thanks so much for yeah. joining us, Jill. Um, yeah, it's, it's great catching up with you. Uh, is there any way to find your work or any future things that you're doing? Ooh, um, let's see. I've, I've been writing a little bit for a, a, on a magazine called Apollo. I've written about some Civil War topics there. And I think I'm going to be reviewing a Civil War like, art exhibit that's coming to D.C. for them in a couple of months. Because um, apparently Civil War art is like a thing that people are still producing. Hmm. Um, Whoa. Yeah, and I also, I, I'm right, working on a chapter in a book, an edited collection about maps of the Civil War, and thinking about like maps and interactivity um, and Civil War space. So hopefully that will come out like in a decade or so, maybe. Yeah, these things are so slow. <laughs> All right, so tomorrow. <laughs> yes. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We're the PhDivas. Uh, please yeah. like, subscribe, review. Uh, take care of yourselves. Bye. 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 Okay. Pause and save.